Hey, Unchained listeners. As you know, it's hard keeping up with the fast-paced world of crypto, so we've got just the thing for you. Subscribe to our free Unchained daily newsletter at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. You'll get the latest crypto news and original articles from our reporters, as well as summaries of other happenings and bullet points, plus our meme of the day, all curated and written by our amazing team. It's still your no-hype resource for all things crypto, just in newsletter form. Sign up at unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Again, the URL is unchainedcrypto.substack.com. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Unchained, your no-hype resource for all things crypto. I'm your host, Laura Shin, a journalist with over two decades of experience. I started covering crypto six years ago, and as a senior editor at Forbes, was the first mainstream media reporter to cover cryptocurrency full-time. This is the February 25th, 2022 episode of Unchained. With the Crypto.com app, you can buy, earn, and spend crypto in one place. Download and get $25 with the code LAURA, link in the description. Brave Wallet is the first secure wallet built natively in a Web3 crypto browser with no extension required. You can store, manage, and grow your crypto portfolio all from a safer wallet. Visit brave.com slash unchained to get started. Point change is the easiest way to earn passive income using crypto. You can safely deposit cash or cryptocurrencies to earn up to 20% annual yield. There is no lending or market risk, just simple, high return yield farming. Create an account today at trydefi.cc slash UNC and receive 40 USDC. That's trydefi.cc slash UNC. Today's guest is me, author of The Cryptopians, Idealism, Greed, Lies, and the Making of the First Big Cryptocurrency Craze. Here to interview me about my book, which came out on Tuesday, is Stephen Ehrlich, editor of Forbes Crypto Asset and Blockchain Advisor. Welcome, Stephen. <laughs> Thanks, Laura. It's a pleasure to be here, and thank you for, for joining me as well. So, yeah, so, so let's dive in. I mean, your book, your book just came out. Um, I mean, one question that just immediately comes to mind is, why did you decide to write a book and, and why did you pick this topic? Having covered the initial coin offering craze in 2017 and seen just how quickly the whole thing took off and how it transformed the lives of so many different sources of mine, even my own life, actually, it really felt like something historic happened and it felt like something that was worth chronicling in a book. So at that time, I felt, well, this would be a good moment to you know, try to capture what happened. And so that is why I decided to cover this. And also I've wanted to write a book ever since I was a young child. So felt like a good time to achieve that goal. <laughs> Yeah, no, it makes sense. And uh, and one thing that also kind of jumps out immediately when when I think about the book is is the title. I, I mean, it does um, it, it does sort of crack the veneer of a happy go lucky group of optimists looking to, to to build a better future. I mean, you really go deep and talk about some of some of the the, the conflicts that arose among the, this early cadre of founders that that broke along like economic, um, political, economic lines and, and visions of how Ethereum should. Uh, should happen. So, um, I mean, why did you, you choose that title? And then what do you think people uh, who read the book should understand about the early days of, of Ethereum? My editor and I wanted to capture the fact that this was a book that 
was really about people and about the human aspects of this technology. And so that was why, especially just the phrase, the cryptopians was something that, you know, he really advocated for. And for the subtitle, idealism, greed, lies, and the making of the first big cryptocurrency craze, those elements are all part of that time period in crypto. And frankly, I think they're probably also, you know, they probably also capture the current time period as well. I think probably there's a mixture of that in pretty much every era of crypto. But, you know, it really comes through in the story that there are definitely elements of all of those things. And so, you know, that that basically just captured the the story. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's funny, in one section of the book, you talk about the, the Red Wedding Day. Um, and, and the book, the title itself uh, reminded me a little bit of, of just like Game of Thrones and, and Palace Intrigue. So so it is kind of an interesting um, sort of analogy there. Um, so let's talk about some of the people. Obviously, the, the, the main character in the book is someone that I'm sure all of your listeners have heard of, uh, Vitalik Buterin, um, the Russian-born Canadian uh, computer scientist, founder of, of Ethereum. What makes him such an interesting person to cover? Vitalik definitely is a very interesting character. He is not somebody that anybody would call, I mean, these are pejoratives that are used, but, you know, basic or a typical fill in the blank. I mean, you could use any word there and and I don't think anybody would say Vitalik is typical in any way. He's really a singular person and he has a very complex personality. And when you have someone like that who is a little bit, you know, different, not exactly kind of a a certain type of person that you might be able to predict, like, you know, how they would be, but also somebody who has a hard time asserting himself, all of those things kind of, you know, are not necessarily qualities that make for a good leader. And a lot of people looked to him as a leader in the early years of Ethereum but he wasn't necessarily willing to assert himself in that way. And because there were so many different competing motives from different people and a lot of infighting, that created a lot of problems for Ethereum. And really those problems dragged on for quite a long time. Mm-hmm. And, and it's funny, I mean, as, as, as I read through the book, uh, I, I mean, you see Vitalik's uh, progression, maturation as, as a leader in, in, in some regards when it comes to making tough decisions when it comes to um, business, personality, et cetera. But he definitely does seem to struggle too about knowing who to trust, um, knowing whether certain people are just being nice to him because they want to ride his coattails or if they genuinely do care about him. And and it's a lot for for an early 20-something thrust into the, the center of a, of a, it turned out to be a multi-billion dollar economy. So that is an interesting journey to follow. Yeah. And one thing I wanted to add was he was so naive when he was young that it didn't even occur to him that some people might have these ulterior motives. He was so pure that it never occurred to him that people might be trying to use him or that they might act toward him one way, but a different way toward others. And so his inability to really understand human nature was another issue at, you know, at the core of kind of some of the dysfunctional issues in Ethereum leadership. Yeah. I mean, to kind of put it into perspective, it sounds like this was really his first job. I mean, aside from writing articles for, for Bitcoin Weekly, Bitcoin Magazine, I mean, this was his first exposure to office politics. Yeah, certainly his first management experience. <laughs> but but Vitalik's just one of the characters. I, I mean, for people, again, that are still relatively new to the space, I mean, 
they hear the name Gavin Wood, they think about the founder of, of Polkadot. They hear the name Charles Hoskinson and they identify him with Cardano. Um, they don't realize, one, that Ethereum ever had a CEO or that it was Charles or, or that Gavin was a developer for Ethereum who, who built one of the main clients. So, uh, I mean, just very briefly, can you just introduce us to a few of the, the main players from early on um, that sort of appear throughout the book? So the main developers of Ethereum early on were Vitalik and Gavin, and also somebody named Jeffrey Wilkie, as we w- might say in English, but in Dutch, it's Jeff Vilka. And those three really coded up Ethereum. Obviously, they had help from other developers, but they were kind of the the main three. And there were other people in early Ethereum leadership, such as Charles Hoskinson, who early on was the CEO. There were other co-founders, such as Amir Shetrit, who was working on colored coins at the same time. Anthony Diorio, who funded the project early on. Uh, Joe Lubin, who then later went on to found Consensus and was Ethereum's COO during that early period. And Mihai Alisie, who worked with Vitalik on Bitcoin Magazine. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's funny. I mean, Joe and, and Anthony stick out. Um, I mean, in some ways, they're seen as, as as the money. I mean, Joe with with consensus, uh, an entire book could be written on the the development of, of of that company and sort of the roles played in in Ethereum because uh, I mean, just because of some of the palace intrigue, but also it really tried to uh, create. I guess what he, what Joe called it a, a venture studio where they were trying to build companies, but also develop the blockchain at the same time. So it was a very difficult challenge and 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 people that followed the consensus closely have will will know about some of the issues and and hurdles that it has had to overcome through its development what were some of the challenges when it comes to building ethereum there might be a misperception out there that it's just a bunch of computer nerds in an office just coding up um, a blockchain but uh, there are there were um, I mean, there were some issues when it comes to funding, to development, to just the legal status, and then also the workforce, the composition of the team. So, so what were some of the, the big challenges and and um, and dividing lines that emerged um, for you as you were researching this book? So, in true decentralized fashion, there were multiple people tasked with different things, and they were spread across the globe. And there was a group in Zook who lived in a house together, and they tackled a lot of the administrative things around holding the crowd sale from Switzerland, you know, tax issues, legal issues, et cetera. But there were also people who were working on trying to make sure that they could hold the crowd sale in the U.S. and have U.S. investors participate. And so there was another crew in New York that was working with a legal firm here to try to get an opinion letter that would state that in this law firm's opinion that such a crowd sale would not be illegal. And meanwhile, there were the coders around the world who were working on the coding. Vitalik himself actually spent quite a bit of that time in Asia. So, you know, even though Gavin had hired a whole office of developers for his C++ client in Berlin, you know, Vitalik, who was working on the Python client, was often not there. Jeff Vilka was in Amsterdam and his team was spread across across the globe. There were some people who were actually working for the Berlin office, but they were working for him, not for Gavin. So it was definitely very decentralized. And, and what were I don't want you to give away all your secrets, but but what were some of the 
dividing lines or or, or the big personality clashes uh, amongst this sort of decentralized team. So yeah, this gets into some of the things that I think I have not been known before my book. And one of them is that after a period, Jeff and Gavin started to grow apart and there were there there was definitely i guess you could call a rift and so people will have to read a little bit about how this develops but this was not something that their friendship started out with it definitely grew over time and you know part of the development of ethereum is what caused that to happen and uh, and i hinted at it earlier in, in the um in the interview but there was there was a red wedding day, which was kind of I guess um, almost like like a, a bloodletting in a in a figurative sense, where um, the team kind of found a, a new reconstitution to move forward. Maybe you could just briefly talk about what happened there because it involved some some very big names and sort of how it enabled Ethereum to to move into the the crowd sale and and so on and so forth. So a lot of tensions had been building in Ethereum very early on, and all of this came to a head at a certain point where a certain group got together and they did some research on Charles, who was kind of Charles Hoskinson, who was sort of seen as one of the main causes of the tension amongst the group, and frankly, quite a big problem for Ethereum itself. And so they came together and they had a plot almost sounds like very um, nefarious, but it's really more around just a plan to, to have this discussion, but their purpose was to have Charles removed from Ethereum. And that is what culminated in the Red Wedding Day or the Games of Game of Thrones Day, as people called it. And at that time is when Charles and Amir Shetrit were both removed from the project. This this has been chronicled before, although I do think there are some new details about how it went down in my book. Join over 10 million people using Crypto.com, the easiest place to buy, earn, and spend over 150 cryptocurrencies. Spend your crypto anywhere using the Crypto.com Visa card. Get up to 8% cash back instantly, plus 100% rebates for your Netflix, Spotify, and Amazon Prime subscriptions. Download the Crypto.com app now and get $25 with the code LAURA. Link in the description. It's time to bring Wall Street to Main Street. CoinChange is democratizing access to wealth management with low-risk, high-return, passive income through DeFi. It's simple. Just deposit your crypto into a CoinChange high-yield account to earn more over time. Your yield is paid out daily and can be withdrawn anytime. CoinChange's yield farming doesn't utilize lending or other risky strategies. No minimums, no obligations, just high yield. It's time for a change. Create an account today at trydefi.cc slash unc to receive 40 USDC. That's trydefi.cc slash unc. Um, so when was the crowd so actually initiated and, and, and finalized and, and how much money did the foundation end up raising from it? The crowd sale finally launched July 22nd, 2014. And it went for 42 days, which was a number they picked based off this book they liked. 
Douglas Adams's The Hitchhiker's Guide to the, <laughs> the Galaxy. And they raised, if you were, so if you were to convert mm-hmm. the Bitcoins as they came in, it would have been $18 million. But since they did not do that, ultimately by the end, they got roughly half that in dollars. Yeah, I know that was also a point of contention in, in the book that, that people will need to 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 read about. So the crowd sale's done, but that's not where the the challenges ended, obviously. Then then Ethereum had to work on on, on growing and and I, I think for really the first time it had to deal with hostile actors as well and, and sort of handling some of the ramifications there. Uh, a few events that you detail extensively in the book include the the Dell hack, the, the Shanghai attacks, and, and also a hack of the, the parity client. So maybe you could just briefly touch on, on the three of those and because um, they're each a, a little bit different and forced the foundation to really sort of move quickly to to avoid really a significant damage or, or I guess a crippling damage in the case of the DAO. So with the DAO, this obviously was just an application on Ethereum, but because the hacker got what was then about 5% of all Ether, this definitely caused a crisis for Ethereum. And frankly, also the DAO itself had 14% of all Ether. And so the remaining 9% were also at risk because the DAO smart contract was just vulnerable. And so in that regard, that just created this huge existential crisis for Ethereum, which we did discuss in the Tuesday show. So if people haven't listened to that, they should definitely check that out. But that obviously, I mean, it led to the creation of Ethereum Classic. And that really is sort of seen as this stain on the history of Ethereum. There are a lot of critics of Ethereum who will point to that as evidence that Ethereum is not immutable, which is, you know, in their minds, a a point of criticism for a blockchain. Yeah, sacrosanct. Exactly. Yeah. And so... You know, after that, the other attacks were kind of different. The Shanghai attacks, which were a series of distrib- um, denial of service attacks on Ethereum over the course of a month, they basically ended up making Ethereum stronger because they just kept attacking these different weaknesses in Ethereum itself. This was not the DAO, it was Ethereum itself. And obviously, that did create a problem for Ethereum. And it was, you know, something that all the developers were working on, but it didn't quite create, create the same existential crisis because they basically just kept fighting off the attacks and patching each of the vulnerabilities until finally they stopped. And frankly, Ethereum at that point just became stronger and became more well-equipped to handle what eventually became an onslaught of activity in the next year as the initial coin offering craze took off. And for the parity multi-sig attack, those were really on the parity multi-sig wallet. Um, there were two of them. And the second of those really impacted parity itself much more than anyone else. So it almost seems, you know, that that really was was almost targeted at parity. But clearly, you know, I think a lot of people became aware of the importance of wallet security through both of those incidents. Yeah, the, the Shanghai attacks, the, the the DDoS attacks are interesting to me to me as well because um, for listeners who don't know, uh, a DDoS or um, denial of service attack it doesn't actually breach any any security. 
it's really designed to just kind of overload a, a network or a website to to on the point where it stops working. And um, I mean, you, you detail exactly how that happened in, in in the book, but it's not necessarily something being breached. It's uh, it's more or less uh, an attacker wittingly or, or unwittingly, depending on, on the circumstances, um, just just causing traffic overload to the point of uh, of just collapses late. It, yeah. So one person, I just have a couple more because I know we don't want to go go too long on this. Um, at this point, we can't have any interview about this, the book without mentioning uh, Ming Chen. Um, she she features prominently throughout and, and is certainly a controversial figure. So, so maybe just please explain who she is, um, the role she played in, in the foundation and, and why she was so, so controversial. Ming was hired as the executive director of the Ethereum Foundation in the spring of 2015. And she was hired at a time when Ethereum was trying to kind of professionalize its board and the management of the foundation. So she was hired along with three other board members. And she almost immediately caused some drama and did certain things that cast suspicion on her motives. And when I say that, actually, I should rephrase it to say to certain people, she, you know, caused the suspicion, but to Vitalik, he either, you know, even though he was informed of those actions that cast suspicion on her motives, he either chose not to believe what whatever those suspicions might be or to have those suspicions himself. And he listened to her and ended up giving her a lot more power. And the board members ended up leaving over this situation. They kind of were put in a little bit of an impossible situation, which Vitalik himself wrote a letter explaining he agreed that, yes, they were in an impossible situation. But then after that, it really became about Ming and Vitalik essentially running the foundation and Ming was very controversial because many people in the community did not think she was doing a good job. They felt that there were many problems with the way she managed the foundation. And because she was their boss, they couldn't necessarily express those issues and feel that they would be dealt with appropriately. And so the problems that people perceived with Ming just dragged on for as long as she was part of the foundation. Yeah. And, and then um, her exit also, um, as you did in the book, was very protracted. And uh, and it, I think it ended up finally coming to a head when a bunch of Vitalik's friends, uh, I believe it was in Thailand, almost had an intervention with him, where he kind of eventually came to the conclusion that, I guess, for the health of the foundation and, and Ethereum, they had to they had to move on, but, but, but it is, it is interesting. And, um, and also kind of paints a picture to the type of people that then move into crypto because we hear a lot. I mean, Ming had impeccable credentials. I mean, M MIT university of, of Michigan. Um, I mean, on, on paper, she looked like a, a, a terrific hire. And, and today, I mean, we hear all about people from wall street applying to work at crypto firms. And, and sometimes there is a bit of a culture clash. Sometimes, sometimes it's just a personality it might not be a good fit. And, and sometimes, uh, I know, as you detail the book, when Vitalik was looking for Ming's replacement, he looked for someone that perhaps didn't have like the same sparkling resume, but but would be a better culture fit. So I, I think that's an interesting thread that you you pull at in the book. 
so I know we're getting close close to time, but one of the other big themes they touched on are our ICOs and sort of how that craze started off and ended up throughout 2017 and, and early 2018. I mean, just brought unprecedented levels of fundraising and attention to, to crypto. And I wanted your thoughts, because this has obviously been covered extensively by you and, and numerous other journalists around the world. I'm curious, like any big takeaways, but also why do you think ICOs took off when they did? Because there were plenty of, of crowd sales and, and, and token generation events, whatever you want to call it. I mean, Ethereum ran one a, a couple years prior that, that did not raise hundreds of millions of dollars. So, so why do you think the ICOs really just exploded in late 2017, early 2018? Because by that point, with the Ether price as high as it was, it created a whole new class of crypto whales. Before then, we'd had the Bitcoin whales, but now suddenly there were all these Ethereum whales. And on top of that, now it was much easier to participate. There were things like my Ether wallet, which just made it possible for people to participate from their web browser. And that's what they were doing. And, you know, this was something where you didn't need to be an accredited investor. And in the private the private markets in general, like for startups, were remaining private for much longer. You know, in previous eras of, in history, startups went public much more quickly than they do nowadays. And so there was just kind of, I think, a lot of hunger for people to get more return on their investments. And crypto really was providing that. And since, you know, with, just with a little MyEtherWallet uh, wallet, people could participate in these ICOs and very quickly become liquid and turn that into real money. And that's why we also saw these pump and dump schemes and continue to see them to this day because crypto assets are liquid very quickly. And, you know, it just creates a lot of incentives for bad behavior. Yeah. And, and you detail uh, my ether wallet in, in, in the, in the book as well. And, 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 and basically how tailored stopped sleeping to answer a customer service request as, as they were coming in and they supported more ICOs. And so that is a fascinating part of it, part of it as well. And it kind of likens back to exchanges and how you detail where they, with the DAO, they let people buy DAO tokens right with, with fiat and just kind of eliminated that friction. Um, so that's always an interesting uh, little tidbit. I know we're getting close to time. So, so just, just to wrap up, um, I wanted to ask you to look at the research you've done for your book and sort of how that applies to today, where DeFi is now the big thing, not necessarily, well, DeFi and, and NFTs. And both of those um, have gone through their own cycles of, of, of hype. Uh, NFTs currently are, are, are white hot. And, uh, and basically, like, do you have any projections, prognostications uh, about like what you think, how some of those new, new trends might, might play out based on the work you've done to put this together? Well, something funny that I find is that both DeFi and NFTs are moving to DAOs. So I'm actually wondering if this next big trend is just going to be DAOs, but it's going to be all the things just move to DAOs because, you know, a lot of different, like, you know, FWB is an NFT group or, um, I mean, Nouns DAO is like another DAO, but it's around NFTs. I mean, there's, there's so many of them. And then if you look at, you know, like Aave or, compound or whatever, all of these are either trying to decentralize or have already decentralized and they're using governance tokens. So I actually feel like that is the overarching trend and we'll see what happens, but I am keeping my eye on it because obviously I am in the market for what my next book will be. 
And that actually was going to be my, my last <laughs> question. I'm, I'm sure you're going to take a, a bit of a, a breather now that this is out. But if you were going, to, if you had a plan to write a second book, what would the topic be? Well, I let's just say I can't say too much about that right now, but <laughs> but um, I might have some news on that pretty soon. So keep keep posted. I'll, I'll keep you posted. <laughs> All right, that sounds great. Well, once again, Laura, thank you for joining me on on Unchained. Uh, it was a pleasure to, to speak with you and congratulations for um, getting this out there for everybody to read. Thanks so much. Thanks, Stephen. It's been so great having you interview me. I'm so glad you came on the show. Thank you. Web3 means freedom from big tech and Wall Street with more control and better privacy. But your crypto wallet is a weak point. Most wallets are browser extensions, a Web2 technology. That means the same old risks, app spoofing, phishing scams, and theft. Brave Wallet is different. Brave Wallet is the first secure wallet built natively in a Web3 crypto browser with no extension required. With Brave Wallet, you can buy, store, send, and swap assets, manage your portfolio, and NFTs. You can see real-time CoinGecko data built right into your dashboard and connect other wallets and other Web3 dApps, all from the security of one of the most popular privacy browsers on the market. Whether you're new to crypto or a seasoned pro, it's time to ditch those risky extensions and switch to Brave Wallet. Get started at brave.com unchained. Thanks for tuning in to this week's news recap. For those of you watching on video, I apologize for the lighting where I am as I'm on the road, and so I'm just making do with what I have. Russia's move on Ukraine shocked crypto markets. The market capitalization of all cryptocurrencies slid roughly 10% in the hours after news broke that Russia had launched a military operation in Ukraine. The crypto markets dropped from a high of around $1.76 trillion to a low of about $1.58 trillion between 11.30 a.m. UTC on Wednesday and 1.30 a.m. on UTC on Thursday. Liquidations were also severe, with over $860 million in positions wiped out in the 24 hours between Wednesday and Thursday afternoon, 3.30 p.m. Eastern specifically, making it the largest liquidation event in February. According to the block, these liquidations could more than double if the price of ETH falls below $2,100, which would result in an automatic liquidation of $500 million in ETH if the positions of seven siblings, a large maker vault holder, are not re-collateralized. That being said, following an announcement from U.S. President Joe Biden of sanctions against Russia, Bitcoin rose by more than $4,000. Russia's decision to enter Ukraine was met with vociferous opposition by some of the biggest names in crypto. Very upset by Putin's decision to abandon the possibility of a peaceful solution to the dispute with Ukraine and go to war instead, wrote Ethereum creator Vitalik Buterin, who also added that the invasion is a crime against both the Ukrainian and Russian people. Digital currency group's Barry Silver was even more upfront, tweeting, Fuck war. Mimo Capital begins internal investigation of Toby Honish. On Tuesday, I published an article on Forbes describing how, 
In the course of reporting and writing my book, The Cryptopians, my sources and I found the person that we believe is the 2016 DAO attacker, Toby Honish, who denied it in an email. Afterward, his new venture, Mimo Capital, expressed surprise at the result of my investigation, but also said it was conducting a new investigation into Honish using a third-party firm. Outfishing. 17 OpenSea users lose NFTs. 17 OpenSea customers fell prey to a complex phishing attack on Sunday morning. According to an internal investigation completed by the NFT marketplace, the attack was not specifically connected to OpenSea emails, domains, or its official website. Overall, the attack took place across 15 hours, during which thousands of dollars worth of NFTs were stolen. In a tweet thread recapping the phishing scam, OpenSea CTO Nadav Hollander explained the scam was most likely a targeted attack as opposed to a systemic issue regarding a contract upgrade on OpenSea that tricked users into signing a malicious smart contract. Going forward, Hollander is confident that fishers will have trouble executing similar attacks because OpenSea is adding EIP-712 to its new contract. This upgrade will improve the security of signing off-chain messages, such as signing a message to join a waitlist, raffle, or token-gated Discord group. Hollander also noted that OpenSea would be helping victims of the attack, even though it stemmed from outside the NFT marketplace. Speaking of OpenSea and buggy code, a complaint filed by Timothy McKimmy in Texas federal court claims that he is the rightful owner of Board Ape 3475, despite Ethereum's blockchain showing that he sold it for 0.01 ETH earlier this year due to an alleged bug on OpenSea's website. In his suit, McKimmy is asking for the return of his NFT and damages over $1 million. He is accusing OpenSea of negligence and breach of contract. The current price floor for a board API club NFT is somewhere around $200,000. China Outlaws Crypto Fundraising China's Supreme Court ruled that raising money from the public via digital assets is illegal, according to a statement released on Thursday. While China has banned crypto in the past, this new ruling allows China to officially charge digital asset fundraisers with criminal sentences and jail time. Luna Foundation Guard buys Bitcoin to back its stablecoin. The Luna Foundation Guard announced a $1 billion token sale of Luna, the native token of Terra, a smart contract blockchain specializing in stablecoins. Do Kwan, the founder of Terra, described the $1 billion raise as the largest ever cap formation in crypto. Investors who participated in the sale will see their Luna locked on a four-year vesting schedule. Luna Foundation Guard, LFG for short because crypto, is a nonprofit organization focused on supporting Terra and UST, the largest stablecoin on Terra and fourth largest stablecoin by total market capitalization writ large. Notably, proceeds from the $1 billion Luna sale will be used to purchase Bitcoin and create a Forex reserve, available to tap during times of extreme market volatility to keep UST's value pegged to the dollar. According to a thread by Terra, the move is designed to assuage concerns regarding a crypto bank run scenario, and Bitcoin is the ideal asset for such a plan. Although the widespread adoption of UST as a consistently stable asset 
through market volatility should already refute this. A decentralized reserve can provide an additional avenue to maintain the peg in contractionary cycles that reduces the reflexivity of the system. The UST Forex Reserve is an LFG initiative to provide a further layer of support for the UST peg using assets that are considered less correlated to the tarot ecosystem, like Bitcoin. In addition to the Terra News, a judge in New York ordered Terraform Labs, the development firm behind Terra, to comply with an investigative subpoena into whether Terraform Labs had violated U.S. securities laws via Mirror Protocol, a synthetic asset DeFi platform. Quan, who is also the CEO of Terraform Labs, initially pushed back against complying with the SEC and had filed a separate lawsuit against the securities regulator. BitMEX founders plead guilty. Arthur Hayes and Benjamin Dello, founders of and executives of the crypto exchange BitMEX, pled guilty to violating the Bank Secrecy Act on Thursday, which carries a maximum sentence of five years. A press release by the U.S. Department of Justice listed their transgressions as willfully failing to establish, implement, and maintain an anti-money laundering or AML program at BitMEX. Both Hayes and Dello will pay a $10 million criminal fine. Canadian regulators are not a fan of self-custody. According to a report from the Leader Post, the Ontario Securities Commission contacted law enforcement agencies regarding tweets from two prominent crypto CEOs, flagging the comments because the regulator felt the executives were offering advice on evading sanctions. The news comes after Canadian law enforcement asked Canadian crypto trading platforms to freeze assets associated with a list of cryptocurrency addresses involved in sending funds to the Freedom Convoy, trucker protests. The flagged tweets came from Coinbase CEO Brian Armstrong and Kraken CEO Jesse Powell. They recommended that users concerned about government seizure move their assets off of crypto exchanges to self-custodied wallets. In response to a comment asking if Kraken would comply with authorities to freeze accounts, Powell had this to say, 100% yes, it has slash will happen. And 100% yes, we will be forced to comply. If you're worried about it, don't keep your funds with any centralized, regulated custodian. We cannot protect you. Get your coins or cash out and only trade peer-to-peer. As for Armstrong, he simply professed agreement with his fellow CEO, tweeting in response to a question about Coinbase custody in Canada. I agree with at Jess Powell on this. Despite Canada's attempt to freeze funds associated with roughly 30 Bitcoin wallets, on-chain data shows that around 20 BTC have been moved since last week, with some of the funds ending up on Coinbase and Crypto.com, which, disclosure, is a sponsor of my show. As of press time, it's unclear if the funds were cashed out or whether crypto exchanges not listed as financial institutions in Canada would have to comply with Canadian law. Salesforce employees speak out against new database product. Two weeks ago, CNBC reported that Salesforce, a top 75 company by market cap in the world, is working on an NFT cloud service. However, as with many NFT projects that hit mainstream companies, the software provider is being met with immediate pushback, this time in the form of 400 employees signing a letter objecting to the NFT initiative over environmental and scam concerns. Reuters cited one Salesforce employee who would quit if the NFT plan came to fruition, 
and says the firm will be hosting a listening session about its future plans soon. Andrew Yang launched a DAO. Former presidential candidate Andrew Yang launched a DAO last week. Dubbed Lobby 3, the DAO's focus will be to advocate for Web3 policies in Washington, D.C. Unfortunately, ill-informed and poorly designed policy can prevent Web3 from reaching its full potential. That's why we're building Lobby 3, explained the website. Membership in the DAO will be controlled via an NFT with three tiers that will help operate the DAO via policy suggestions, speaker requests, and treasury decisions. The mint for Lobby 3 will go live next Monday. Sotheby's gets punked. An auction for 104 CryptoPunks at Sotheby's was canceled at the last second on Thursday night. 0x650D, the CryptoPunks owner, explained the cancellation on Twitter, writing, Never mind, decided to hodl. He also posted a meme saying that he was taking punks mainstream by rugging Sotheby's. The value of the CryptoPunks had been estimated to be between $20 million and $30 million. Time for fun bits. NFTs are dumb. The only way to prove this is blowing up a car. To prove that the NFT space is full of really extractive zero-sum practices, as an artist called Shlomes told The Block, they decided to blow up a $250,000 Lamborghini. Somewhat humorously, the charred parts are now being sold as a collection of 888 NFTs in a supposed protest of crypto's get-rich-quick culture, as The Block reports. Shlomes told Fortune that the majority of the sale would go to fund public art installations. Thanks so much for joining us today. To learn more about me, my book, The Cryptopians, Idealism, Greed, Lies, and the Making of the First Big Cryptocurrency Craze, and my findings about who the likely DAO attacker is, check out the show notes for this episode. Unchained is produced by me, Laura Shin, with help from Anthony Yoon, Daniel Ness, Mark Murdoch, Shashank, and CLK Transcription. Thanks for listening. Thank you.